Science Talk will begin right after this brief message. We are Janssen, the pharmaceutical companies of Johnson & Johnson. We bring together cutting-edge science and the most creative minds in the industry to think differently about how diseases can be not just treated, but predicted, preempted, and stopped in their tracks. Solving complex problems and moving forward is about taking a different approach. It's about how we work and who we work with. Because at Janssen, we're creating a future where disease is a thing of the past. This is Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on June 25th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... If you are dispositionally dominant as a personality, it kind of makes sense for you to instill fear and uncertainty in a community. Because if you do that, people are more likely to look to your dominant character for direction and leadership about where you go. That's Stephen Martin. He and Joseph Marx are the authors of the book Messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. Martin and Marx will tell you a bit about their backgrounds in a moment. They were in New York City before the coronavirus pandemic, so we had the now rare pleasure of meeting in person at Scientific American's offices. I'm sure you'll get this question a lot, but who are you guys? Why should I listen to you? The audience is going to hear two different voices, so please introduce yourself and then tell us really who you are in the field and why we should listen to you. Well, my name is Steve Martin. I am from the United Kingdom, as you can probably guess from my accent. And I'm a behavioral scientist. Uh, specifically, I work in the field of applied persuasion science. So what influences people to make the decisions that they make, uh, you know, choose the things they choose, act in the way that they do. I've uh, co-authored a couple of previous books, including a book called Yes, with two of my colleagues, Noah Goldstein, who's a researcher at UCLA, and the groundbreaking researcher Robert Cialdini, the uh, eminent social psychologist from Arizona State University. So that's who I am. And I am Joseph Marks. Um, I am a psychologist at University College London and a visiting lecturer at City University London. And again, like Steve, kind of in very interested in researching why we listen to certain people and not others. Um, and what are the kind of inferences that people make um, about other entities um, that will affect kind of their perception of them and then how they respond to them in the future? Your book very clearly delineates what you think are these major touchstones right. of influence and um, it's really status a lot of it comes down to. Right. Why I should listen to you. And you, you gave us your academic and professional credentials, and that's a big deal in a lot of what we're talking about. Right, indeed. But more broadly, one of the things that we have found, in, and it's a fascinating array of scientific research into who we listen to and, and who we don't, um, but what we found particularly intriguing is how two different people can say the exact same thing and an audience believe one of them and not the other. And so the fact that what's being said is the same in those instances must lead us to conclude that who is saying what is being said often matters as much. And in certain instances, Joe and I have actually found more 
than the substance or the content of the message itself. And, and that's kind of fascinating and potentially unnerving as well. If, you know, looking and sounding right may in certain circumstances actually be more important than being right. Absolutely. You talk in the book about the benefits of a deeper voice. And I, I know that I have benefited just in some personal interactions, working here at Scientific American with authors. I know that I have had smoother interactions in editing than some of the women on staff who had naturally higher voices and had difficulties with some of the men they were editing. And we see it in, in elections. The taller candidate is often, you know, disproportionately the winner. Indeed. In, in fact, even in political elections, we find that... Uh, so in the UK, we've had two previous female prime ministers in Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May, both of whom took coaching uh, in the practice of lowering the tonality of their voice. By, by no less than Laurence Olivier. Laurence Olivier. No <laughs> for for Thatcher. Thatcher. Yeah. And he famously worked at lowering his voice for, I, I think it was Othello, but I'm not sure. Indeed, yeah. indeed. So there's an example of an inference that we make about the quality of someone's competence and message. And essentially what we're listening to is the tonality of their voice. And, and as a result of hearing that, we make all sorts of predictions and inferences about who they might be as a person, the, their competence, whether they're worth listening to or not. You talk in the book also about uh, people who watch a video of 10 seconds without sound of a teacher are able to give a, pretty much the same ratings of their ability as a teacher as do their own students after a full semester. Yeah, it's really remarkable, isn't it? That people will make these assessments of a teacher just based on their non-verbal body language. And what they're really looking at is um, whether they come across as optimistic, enthusiastic, um, positive and confident. And they can really narrow down and kind of uh, calculate all of these behaviors by categorizing certain movements. Um, and, and generally, this perception is formed so quickly that even just looking at a video with no sound, like you say, for 10 seconds, gives off the same impression that a group will have after three months. And, and actually, I think what's going on here is that the students are not rating the teacher for their ability to know the content material. Um, they're really rating them on how they deliver the content material. And you can assess that just from 10 seconds. And if that's the case, as you already mentioned, and I'm talking to Steve Martin now, it's kind of frightening that who's saying it and how they say it carries much more weight than the actual content of the information. It is frightening. It's certainly unnerving. And it's understandable as well if we consider the kind of craziness of the world in which we live in. It's, you know, some of the decisions that we're being asked to make are incredibly difficult ones. You know, would this candidate make a good president? Is Brexit going to be good for the United Kingdom? Who should I vote for? Who shouldn't? What school should I send my kids to? These are incredibly complex decisions to make. And we don't have uh, often the resources, the time to think through uh, all the different permutations and calculations that might lead us to the right decision. And so instead, what we do is we, we ask a different question. Uh, and one question that we may ask is, what do I infer about the messenger that's delivering that content, that advice. And if there's some 
characteristic or trait that inclines me to think that they might be more competent or uh, you know, uh, particularly more trustworthy or more charismatic, I use that judgment to make all sorts of other judgments about entirely unrelated things. You know, we, we're, we're increasingly, Steve, I think, failing to separate out the messenger from the message. And the implication of that is that the messenger has become the message. <laughs> Marshall McLuhan, many decades ago, uh, said it, but, um, or the medium is the, the message, is, the is a very similar idea. But um, in most of the time, that's probably a good idea. You know, I'm, let's go back to, you know, why we make these very quick decisions from an evolutionary point of view. Mm. You want to make decisions that ensure your survival rather than damage your chances of survival. Exactly right. And, and I think that makes perfect sense where you've got, you know, a scientist talking to an audience of scientists. So there's a, there's a symmetry of understanding and information. But what is perhaps more frequently the case is where there's an asymmetry, you know, where you've got people claiming to be experts talking to audiences of non-experts. And as a result, the, the challenge then becomes for those non-expert audiences, well, how do I know whether what's being delivered to me here as a message is, is credible, whether I should act on it? Mm. Um, and similarly, I think sometimes the cues are actually things like a deep voice that may have been evolutionarily adaptive in the past um, because we needed to kind of be able to easily assess strength and confidence in this kind of thing um, or distress. So that's what we evolved to do. Um, but they are now kind of not really in line with our values in, in a progressive society where, like you say, people might favor you having a deeper voice over a female with a, with a different sounding voice who may know a whole hell of a lot more than I do about what we're talking about. But, you know, it, it's sort of uh, the analogy I'm thinking of is uh, the thrifty gene that uh, really promotes uh, diabetes in a lot of communities when there was, uh, which evolved because of a, a boom or bust food situation. And now in an environment of all boom, it's uh, deleterious. So we have the same kind of situation. We do, we do. Uh, except instead of a thrifty gene, we have these kind of largely two categories of messengers, you know, either status-orientated messengers or connectedness-orientated messengers that we're using to, you know, make all sorts of really important decisions about what we should think, who we should listen to, and ultimately what we believe and who we become. Connected, you see this in social media a lot, somebody with perhaps no actual expertise in a field, but the ability to talk to a whole lot of people at the same time will be able to convince people of anything like don't vaccinate your kids. I mean, the vaccination thing is a really good example of how, you know, the message that's being delivered contravenes, you know, pretty much all the established evidence and scientific research. But if the right messenger is hawking or presenting those falsehoods and those facts, they can readily be accepted by certain audiences. And of course, what's particularly problematic about vaccination is that you only need a, a small dent in the herd immunity for some catastrophic uh, impl implications further down the line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here in the States, Jenny McCarthy 
an actress model was really influential in getting people to be frightened of vaccines. And, you know, you put a doctor on television who doesn't have the same charisma, attractiveness, ability to communicate, and they don't convince the masses. There's the classic conundrum, isn't it? Is, you know, do I listen to the status orientated, in this case, competent doctor, or do I listen to the attractive, likable, you know, pop star? A similar situation occurred in 2016 in China, where, you know, a Korean pop star just announced on WhatsApp, contrary to all the evidence, that 90% of people that get a flu vaccine shot actually catch the virus. I mean, it's entirely ridiculous. But the impact that that subsequently had and the issues that it subsequently created for, you know, the public health officials um, was laid bare. It was mm -hmm. astonishing. On the other hand, you, you sometimes try to harness this effect. You talk about the soccer player and the uh, cricket player, was it, mm -hmm. who were considered for, I don't remember if they were actually used, if either of them was actually used, but for a uh, nuclear pr war preparedness PSA. Exactly. And what parliamentarians in, in the 80s recognized was that it's not necessarily the expert who nobody knows, but who knows about the subject that's going to have the best uh, or the biggest impact on people's actual behavior. Sometimes you want somebody who knows nothing about the topic, but who people will respond well to. And so in this case, they were debating in Parliament uh, whether they should be preparing for a nuclear attack. Um, and they had some kind of leaflets and then scientific documentation written up. And the question was posed, who would be the best messenger to deliver this information? And the names put forward were the captain of the England soccer team and the best England cricketer at the time, um, which is remarkable because they knew nothing about nuclear physics. They knew nothing about public health or disaster, national disaster. Um, but it was clear that people would respond well to them in the case of an emergency. The, the, the really fascinating thing about that, Steve, is, and there's, there's numerous examples that we see playing out every day, is once we've made a decision or an inference about one characteristic of some messenger, it allows us almost license to make all sorts of other related inferences about them that have absolutely nothing to do with why we started listening to them in the first place. You know, well, well, if he's the captain of the England football team, he's probably, you know, pretty good at these other things as well. Um, and we see that play out, you know, uh, you know, if we meet for the first time at a conference and we find out that uh, there's someone that we like that we know in common and that you like that person. I'm more likely to like you because you like that person. And in contrast, if we find that there's someone that we both know whom I dislike and, 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 and you know them too, I'm more likely to dislike you. I'm, I'm using these cues to make all sorts of inferences and judgments that have often little to do in terms of relevance to the decision I'm making at that moment in time. And we do it about ourselves. I mean, you made me think of in the book, The Right Stuff, uh, Tom Wolfe talks about how the astronauts many of them in the early days had been test pilots and they were incredible pilots. And so therefore they thought they were incredible drivers, but they weren't incredible drivers and they'd crack up their Corvettes. Yeah. There's that classic, uh, the, Edmund Thorndike, the, you know, the, the psychologist is what decades old now, that halo effect, that inference, that trap we fall into, um, commonplace. Well, we've talked a lot about some of the anecdotes, but let, let's 
do a quick survey of the structure of the book because that really tells the story in a lot of ways. So there are two basic sections of the book, the hard and the soft influencers, and uh, then those are divided into four categories each. Yeah, so our model has two styles of messenger, essentially. Um, we have hard messengers on one hand who have some form of status, and on the other, we have soft messengers who, in contrast to seeking to try and get ahead of others, actually seek to get along with others, um, so to, to, to form a connectedness with their listeners. Um, and each style can be effective um, and also have drawbacks um, in their own right. And we, we discuss where there are pros and where there are cons of each. Um, and essentially, we have four traits, uh, a chapter dedicated to each, to explain routes to status and routes to connectedness. So the four hard traits are socioeconomic position. So essentially someone standing in society, you know, are they well-known, are they rich, are they famous? Um, their competence. So how much instrumental value can they provide to an audience because they have greater knowledge? Dominance. Dominance is the idea that uh, there are personalities, messengers out there who are almost, you know, bought into this idea of, I want to be the victor every time I want to win at all costs. And there are certain contexts in society where we'll look to those kind of messengers for support and for advice. And the fourth hard messenger trait is physical attractiveness. You know, those that are born genetically blessed are conferred, you know, a significant advantage in life. They'll, they'll be attended to more, they'll often earn more money. Um, and as a result, we listen to them more in each of those four categories. Yeah, on the other hand, soft messengers uh, have a connectedness to their audience, and they build this through various ways. Um, one is by expressing po positivity and warmth. They show that they have uh, benevolence and kind regard for those they're talking to. Um, the second is vulnerability, so actually able to take a risk and express their own kind of insecurities and potentially needs and wants and emotions. Um, and that can be daunting, and people often won't want to do it, perhaps because it will reduce their status as well. Um, the third is trustworthiness, um, which essentially is our prediction that another will behave um, in accordance with our f future good faith, um, that we can rely on them, one, for their competence, you know, that they're a safe pair of hands, but two, that they're not going to kind of betray us if a nice opportunity to do so arises. Um, and the final soft characteristic is charisma, um, which is, until re very recently, been hard to define um, and actually that was kind of the main purpose of that chapter was what the hell is charisma yeah um, and it's yeah it's fascinating um, there are essentially a few different ingredients in the recipe of charisma one is the ability to articulate a collective vision that binds people together and the charismatic messenger is seen as kind of the forefront of that group afterwards um, the second is that they communicate in an emotion laden way they express surgency, meaning that they're able to kind of show positivity and enthusiasm. And often that's through nonverbal behaviors. So they'll have a lot of hand gestures that really show how they're feeling. Um, and you can see that in various different types of leaders. So Adolf Hitler had one style, was considered charismatic. Um, whereas Martin Luther King, a very different style, yet still also considered charismatic. What's interesting is uh, this idea that People have studied, for example, the popularity of TED Talks, and they find that you can often find situations where you have two presenters that are talking largely about the same topic, let's say leadership, 
But one presenter's message will be much, much more popular than the others, even though that message is largely the same. Because of their perceived charismatic nature, they they essentially use more hand gestures. They they have greater positivity. And you know, it led the researchers to conclude that uh, if you want to be a popular TED presenter, you want to use about twice as many hand gestures as your less charismatic peers. I should and, note that you're using a lot of hand gestures yeah, as, you're, yeah, yeah, as yeah. you're talking. As a result, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to kind of like practice what I preach here. Yeah. But it's fascinating that, that those, you know, same nonverbal cues that those people that watch the teacher studies uh, were using, uh, we're using in, you know, domains like TED to decide, you know, which presentation I should listen to. Mm -hmm. There's so much content, so much information, so much, you know, message that's being presented to us, served up on a near constant basis that, you know, these are the kind of traits that we're using to determine who we should listen to and, and who we shouldn't. And, you know, again, at no point are we considering the content of what's being said. I'm sure this isn't an original thought, but it, it's almost like you've described the last two presidents of the U.S., the the hard being of obviously Trump and the softer uh, being Obama. And the the different styles obviously resonate with different audiences. And different context as well, Steve. You know, so, um, you know, there, there have been studies looking at the appointments made to the C-suite in large organizations and and, and the c-suite is the, sorry the executive suite yeah. you know the you know uh, so if an organization needs to appoint a new ceo or a you know a chief financial officer you know a high profile position what those recruiting boards will often do and i'm not entirely convinced that they knowingly do this mm -hmm. is they'll be influenced by the current context of that organization and so if the organization is performing poorly if there's you know, low levels of psychological safety, if there's, you know, some, you know, reduction in the value of the equity or the share price of the company, they'll be much, much more likely to select a dominant, a predominantly dominant character to run that organization. Whereas in contrast, if things are going well, you know, there's, you know, a unified direction, you know, the staff are happy, you know, the company's performing well, in those environments, much, much more likely to uh, appoint one of these connected type messages. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting, and you know, your mention of, of politics and the two different presidents is if you are dispositionally dominant as a personality, it kind of makes sense for you to instill fear and uncertainty in a community. Because if you do that, people are more likely to look to your dominant character for direction and leadership about where you go. So if you are a predominantly dominant politician or leader, you, you want to stoke the fear. You, you want to stoke the fear. Yeah, and we actually noted that one of Trump's early campaign videos started with a deep voice saying, the world is a dangerous place. We need a tough president. We, we actually see it go way back. So in anthropological records, then they would choose their chief um, of the tribe, depending on whether they were at war or at peace. Um, and you would get these kind of harder, tougher types leading in times of war. And uh, similarly in actresses, you see American actresses in times of economic uncertainty tend to have kind of harder, more angular faces. Whereas in prosperous times, Le uh, Leslie Zebowitz describes it, you have the face of a baby's glow. Wow, that's really impressive. Yeah, the societal yeah. impact and influence it has is, yeah. is, is amazing. Um, so what 
can, I mean, I find this stuff inherently interesting, but what is a take-home message? I mean, I, I know from reading Cialdini's book many years ago, uh, I always forget, is it called Persuasion or Influence? Influence, the psychology of persuasion. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I might as well tell the story of, of how I uh, discovered Cialdini. I went to a conference at uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science. Right. And I went to a session on baseball, the science of baseball. This is well more than 20 years ago when the science of baseball was nothing like sports analytics is today. But a great sports writer, Washington Post baseball writer named Tom Boswell, got up and started talking about Cialdini. He said that his wife was a social scientist, if I remember correctly. And she was telling him, Tom Boswell, that the manager of the Yankees at the time, Joe Torre, was such a good manager because he employed Cialdini's rules for how to persuade people. And so I said, I got I to gotta read that book. So I read the book, and then I got in touch with Cialdini and commissioned an article that we ran and wound up being his editor. So that's my connection to Cialdini. Yeah. And I know that the article itself has become... Very influential in yeah, it's a yeah. seminal article in Scientific American. Yeah, so uh, you should you should get that article, you listeners, and Definitely. it might be behind the paywall, but it's worth it. <laughs> so there, you know, he described six what what after doing a lot of original research and meta research, uh, looking at how people behaved and also how you know primates behaved in general. Right. Yeah. Uh, what are the, the reasons why people are persuasive and where things like reciprocity, we're, we are hardwired yeah. as primates to be pr- reciprocal. You give me, you loan me two bucks because I forgot to bring it for the train and I'm, I'm going to feel this is going to nag at me that I really need to return a favor to you. And uh, the other things are... Um, with, Liking, right. social proof, the fact exactly. that we... You know, uh, particularly when we're uncertain, we, we, we tend to look outside ourselves and follow the, the lead of others, what others are actually doing. You know, if, if, if all our friends are seeing a particular movie, we might be more inclined to think that, you know, we're, right. we're going to enjoy that movie and the, as well. The, there's the study of just they put somebody on the sidewalk and had them look up. Well, yeah, that's um, one of Stanley Milgram's original yeah. studies from back in the 60s. And, so, and, and, and other people start looking up. And there's absolutely no doubt that... Cialdini's work has been a source of huge inspiration for lots and lots of uh, social scientists, Joe and I included. In fact, we dedicate messengers uh, to Bob. And where this book takes the baton from from from, from Cialdini is, is so so Bob's research has largely been interested in what do you put into a message that most inclines an audience to attend to it and respond positively to it. What Joe and I have done in this set of research these last two and a half years is is attempt to answer the question, when delivering that message, who is the optimal messenger? And that's where these hard and soft categories and the four traits within them come to play. So as a just regular person in society, what do we now do with that information? How can I use this in my own decision-making to decide what message is the one I should listen to and, and whether or not I should listen to who's delivering that message. 
Well, the answer is it's kind of hard because, you know, as we talked about a few moments ago, these are so deeply ingrained within us, often part of the evolutionary process, that they have that, you know, instantaneous seductive quality. I, I see X in a, in a messenger and I infer all these different characteristics. And in these super crazy busy lives that we actually lead, it's, it's often hard to kind of stop ourselves. But I think there are a few things we can do. Uh, I think the first thing we can do is, is at least be aware of them. I wouldn't go so far as to say that simply being aware of them is enough of a defense, but it's a good starting point. Uh, you know, if we start to, you know, at work, see that groups are being, you know, influenced by certain charismatic messengers and we kind of think, well, you know, the substance of what they're saying there, you know, th th there's a bit of a niggling doubt there. That that might be, you know, in that instance, our gut is, is perhaps warning us that, you know, maybe the defense should go up here. So I think that's one thing we can do. There are some other things we can actually do. Um, and I think as, as scientists, we probably don't do this well enough. Um, which is to arrange for where we do have genuine expertise and credibility. Arrange to that, arrange for that credibility and that competence to be introduced before we make our presentation. Ideally, by someone else doing it. It can be pretty hard, you know. If you're a, a researcher and you know you've got an important message to convey, it can be quite hard to say to your audience before you deliver your message. Well, you know, Steve. There's a few reasons why you should listen to what I've got to say, and and here they are because I've got you know this degree, I've done this research, I'm a you know a, an emeritus professor at this university. That kind of that builds that barrier between you and your audience. That 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 reduces the connectedness. So you know, arranging in um, optimal ways for expertise to be introduced. And in fact, actually, there's some really interesting uh, neurological uh, information and, and and research that shows that. An audience's receptivity to a message will often be dependent on how they're introduced, not necessarily what they're saying. Wow. And so the if you're going to be introduced as a speaker, you really want somebody good to do the introduction. Yeah, no, absolutely. It matters who's introducing you to because you're going to be associated with that person. Um, but what, what I, I guess is the main point is that if you take the self out of the promotion, people no longer receive as a boasting, self-aggrandizing um, type of person. They, they see you as enhanced status, but also kind of likable and, and you, you get to keep your humility. Yeah, I mean, the, the, when I first read Cialdini's book, I remember just feeling much more in control of my reactions to things because I could see how people were trying to manipulate me either because they wanted me to take a uh, survey on the street or watching advertisements on TV. You can start to see the, the, uh, the understory of the, of the game that's being played. I, I think so. Yeah. I'm actually reminded of, uh, there's, there's a climate scientist in, in the United Kingdom. Um, she is a, a brilliant researcher and scientist. She's the type of person that if they're going to talk about climate change on the local news or on the TV, they'll often phone this particular lady, have her on the on the couch, do the interviews and things. And you know, invariably, she'll be introduced as this eminent world-leading researcher in climate change. She does something really, really smart before she answers the first question, which is after that credentializing, expert-enhancing introduction, she turns around to the presenter and says, by the way, I think it's important that everyone knows that I'm also a mother. 
And when she does that, what she's essentially doing is she's actually saying, yeah, there's there's a there's a status quality to what I'm about to say. So I, 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 I'm a hard messenger in that instance. But actually, there's a connectedness that I have to listeners because many of them will be parents and will be mm-hmm. thinking about the future. And so she, as a result of doing that, just that extra sentence allows her to pivot between both being a hard messenger and a soft messenger. I think it's a pretty smart thing to actually do because, mm-hmm. you know, often we're faced with situations where do we believe the expert or do we believe the person that's similar to us who knows nothing? In fact, actually, I, Joe's done some fascinating research on that very challenge. That um... Yeah, no, in my own research, then, I've kind of looked at whether people would choose to listen to or se- seek information from a accurate, uh, correct messenger um, on a topic completely unrelated to politics. Mm-hmm. So it's categorizing geometric shapes. Or whether they would listen to somebody who's less accurate um, but shares their political views. Right. Um, and what we find is, you know, first of all, they choose to listen to somebody who shares their political views more often. But the reason why is super interesting. And it, we, we looked at how they rated these people on their competency at categorizing shapes as, uh, as these ge- geometric shapes. And what we found was that those who were inaccurate but politically similar were perceived to be more competent at the task at hand even though they they had seen all the evidence that this was not true, they were not the expert in the room, this evidence was available to them, they still had this illusory perception that they were, in fact, more competent. Um, and, and therefore, they gave them credit, they, list, they sought out their advice, and they listened to that advice. And I think you see that happen every day um, in the current climate that we live in. Yeah, that's fake news. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when she, uh, when your climate scientist... Uh, says, I'm also a mother, that might actually carry more weight with certain people who wouldn't care about her qualifications as a scientist, even though that would be the, you would think that would be the most important thing. Yeah, I I think that's right. And that's a really interesting insight, I think, is that it's very easy for us as messengers, when we're going to deliver a message, to decide for ourselves what might be the most important characteristic of a messenger that the audience may be interested in? Um, and so to pivot between, you know, coming across as both hard and soft is, is important. You see that happen a lot in business, actually. Um, you know, if you are part of a team that develops an idea or a product, because of all the time you've invested, the research you've invested to kind of bring that product proposition to bear, it's, it's very easy then to just suppose that, because I've done all the work, I'm the best person to actually deliver the message. Right. And the, that's not the case. Sometimes yeah. we need to hand over. You know, savvy parents, if they want their 14 or 15-year-old son to be doing his homework and his reading at night, know that they're probably not the best messengers to deliver that message. And you know, the cute girl next door is probably a much, much better messenger in that instance. The message is the same. It's the selection of the messenger that delivers the content of that message that carries the sway here. It's just such interesting stuff. Our our brains are so weird and flawed, and uh, and just having some more information is such a good thing. Thanks you both for uh, uh, really fascinating stuff, and I think uh, people would really enjoy reading the book and 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 starting to see how they are uh, able to be manipulated at some 
points in their lives when uh, maybe some of the information in the book can keep them from, from uh, undergoing that experience. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet. Whenever a new item hits the website, our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.